Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much indeed for your welcome. It's a great delight to be here and to share with you on these three days. Thank you for being brave enough to take on this uh, course. Uh, to try and cover the Bible in eight hours is in some ways uh, an impossibility, but I think it's uh, a very good thing to attempt because it makes us think about what are the big picture uh, issues in the Bible. And I hope in the course of these three days for us to be able to draw something of a map which will help us all in our Bible study as we continue to uh, dig into God's Word for the rest of our Christian lives. I find lots of people who are intimidated by the length of the Bible, who know lots of bits of it and favorite passages, but who've never really seen how it fits together as a whole. And our agenda is to try to do that, to see the big themes of the Bible and to take ourselves through it uh, in these eight sessions. So I hope you're sitting tight to your seat. You will need the uh, white sheet, which is bird's eye view. I'm going to follow this pretty carefully, fairly closely, and I'm going to try to motor through it so that we cover uh, the areas uh, on this first lecture on the sheet. Now, as you will see from the rest of the pack, we have eight sessions that take us through the Bible, but tonight we're just confining ourselves to the Pentateuch, as it's called, which simply means the five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But first of all, a little bit of introduction so that we are all convinced about the value of what we're trying to do. I've asked at the beginning of the lecture there, why does the Bible exist? And really, that is a question that I suppose you could pose in a number of ways. Really, it is asking the question, how can we know anything about God and about ultimate realities uh, in this world or in the next? How do we know anything about God? If you went out on the streets in Newcastle and asked people how to find out the truth about anything, I guess most people would say, well, you would consult the experts. You would say, uh, what uh, do the traditions of our culture tell us? What do most people think? And all those are grounds of authority uh, amongst human beings for finding out truth. But of course, you can't get to know God like that. The knowledge of God is totally different. There is an objective knowledge of God, as we shall see, which the whole of the Bible teaches. But God is not like this reading desk. If I wanted to find out all about this splendid reading desk, and what a joy it is to find a reading desk that has room for you to spread your notes instead of the usual postcard-sized ones. But if I wanted to find out all about this reading desk, I could uh, take it along and get it analyzed in the laboratory. I could be told its weight, its dimensions, what it's made of what its um, density is, all sorts of things about it. And a full description could be written so that if we met this reading desk on the other side of the world, we would know that it was the one from Bethshan in Newcastle. But people aren't like that. And God is a person. So you can't put God through your computer. God is not a collection of sensory data for us to examine. God is a person for us to meet. And people communicate knowledge of themselves by speaking, and by doing things. So the knowledge of God is twofold, and if you're taking notes, you may like to jot them down on this sheet as we go. I've left some spaces for you. Just uh, do what you like with it. Draw pretty pictures if you prefer. But the knowledge of God under section A is, first of all, objective reality. It's truth. It's truth that is revealed by God himself to us. But it is secondly under B, subjective experience. 
That's to say, it's not just truth as we might learn the dates of history or as we might learn irregular French verbs. It is something that we encounter because the truth is about a person whom we know through trusting him and obeying him and loving him. And all through what I say in these three days, I want you to keep those two poles together, not polarizing. Objective truth through revelation, subjective experience of God through faith and obedience. The Bible is never simply an academic book, nor is it simply a book from which we go, to which we go from our experience to see if we can justify it. The two belong together. It is truth and experience, mind and heart, word and spirit. And the two are united together in the Bible because the Bible is the means by which God reveals himself to us. So in the little formula below, we reveal ourselves to one another by our actions and by our words. I'm speaking words to you that are passing through my mind. Hopefully they're relating to your mind. And you are getting to know me and I should get to know you at coffee and afterwards when you come and share some words with me. That's how we reveal our personality. You know what a lecture is, don't you? It's the process by which information is transferred from the lecturer's notes to the student's notes without passing through the mind of either. <laughs> but God is not like that. God reveals himself in actions and words, or in the second line there, events and explanations. Now that is what the Bible is. It's revelation. It's God disclosing himself by telling us what he's going to do, by doing it, and by explaining what it means. Events in history, objective reality, plus explanation, are the revelation of God. And if you want one very classic passage that reveals that in 2 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, where Peter is defending the gospel and saying, we didn't follow clever invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he picks up that equation exactly. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is 2 Peter 1.16. In other words, there was an event in history that we disciples saw. It was Jesus transfigured on the mountain before them. That's what he's thinking of. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves, verse 18, heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So what is Peter saying about the gospel and about the word of God? He's saying that the whole Bible, and the gospel is an example of this, is event plus explanation. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, but we knew what that meant because there was a voice from heaven that told us, this is my son whom I love. Now that's the formula that's at the heart of the Bible. God does things and God explains them. Very often he says beforehand what he's going to do. And in that way he reveals himself to his people, to the world at large, and the personality of God and the call to relationship with him through faith and obedience comes through scripture, the events and the explanations. Now that means that our response then cannot simply be with part of our being. It requires, as the notes say, the response of the whole person. It requires my mind, because God reveals himself to me in propositional terms. I've got to listen to the Bible. I've got to study the Bible. I've got to think about the Bible. It's not a magic lucky dip. It's a book of 66 books that are all written coherently, logically, carefully, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And God expects me to give my mind to it. 
So it's not a sort of spiritual yellow pages where I let my fingers do the walking and I pick out a little verse that I like and suck the sweetie and say that's what the Bible's all about. No, its message is set in specific contexts. It has rational content. And when we come to the Bible, we don't leave our minds behind. We want our minds to be engaged. But it isn't just an intellectual study. Secondly, it requires our spirits to be engaged. Because some of the world's wisest men have been made fools by the Bible. It's an ordinary book that we have to bring our minds to, yet it's much more than that, because as we know, its author is God, the Holy Spirit, and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we need the author to illuminate us, as we prayed this evening at the beginning, that we may rightly understand the word of truth. And isn't it a great thing to know that the one who wrote the book lives within us to interpret the book, to illuminate us as we prayerfully ask him, to teach us its spiritual truth. But it isn't even just that. It thirdly involves our will. For it's not just a book about God. It is the word of God. And what God said in Scripture, in the 66 books of the Bible, he still says. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The psalmist says, the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of God is the same today as yesterday, and it demands a response from us that involves mind and spirit and will. It's a word to be obeyed and to be put into practice. Now, that runs all the way through. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, uh, you remember how there Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that they're to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit on the, at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. See, it involves the mind, the heart, the will. It involves every part of us in responding to the revelation that God has given. And as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's why scripture is profitable to correct us, to build us up, to strengthen us, and to make us thoroughly equipped brothers and sisters within the family of God for every good work that God has to do. Now, I hope you've already seen then that the Bible is absolutely central to authentic Christianity. There is no real Christianity without the scriptures at the very heart of it, the inspired, infallible revelation of God, his word, that endures forever. It isn't the purpose of these lectures to defend that. You remember Spurgeon said he wouldn't defend the Bible, he'd as soon defend a lion. All you have to do, says Spurgeon, is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. And the Bible does that. It defends itself. I'm not here to defend it. I wouldn't begin to try. But as we study it together in these evenings, we're going to see how God authenticates his truth to us today and how he comes to us still to speak to us of these eternal realities, without which there can be no gospel, there can really be no church, and there can certainly be no progress of the Christian gospel in our generation. So let me call you uh, right at the beginning to serious study of the word of God. Don't regard it as cerebral and dry. It is the living, abiding word of God. It's how God communicates himself to us. The Holy Spirit who wrote it is the one who will enable us to understand it and to obey it, because he will give us the strength as we ask him to follow God's will. 
All right, well then secondly, let's ask the question at the bottom of page one, how do we unlock the Bible? And there are three stages here that we need to follow. The first we call exegesis. These are the posy words, don't let them worry you. It simply means really drawing out the meaning. In other words, the question of exegesis is, what does the text say? That's very important in Bible study, isn't it? That we understand what the text says, the plain, literal meaning of Scripture. It isn't complicated. You don't have to have a degree in hermeneutics in order to understand it. It has a basic meaning intended by the author to be grasped by the reader. And that means we have to read it carefully. We need to read it in a good, reliable translation that has carefully worked at the original Hebrew or Greek text. And we need to think carefully about the meaning of the text, the word in the sentence, the sentence in the paragraph, the paragraph in the book, the book in the whole Bible. That's the job of exegesis. We'll be doing a little bit of that as we go on some text, trying to find out what they actually say. The second question is the expositor's question, the question of exposition, which is what does the text mean? What does the text mean? Because we all know it's one thing to say something, and we don't always convey our meaning. But the Bible does have a meaning in every text. Uh, at this point, I think many of us have had negative experiences of some group Bible studies. You know how sometimes when you get into a group Bible study, the leader will say, well, this verse 4 is quite a difficult verse, isn't it? What do you think verse 4 means, Fred? And Fred will say, well, I think verse 4 means that uh, X is white. And uh, he says, yes, well, that's an interesting view. I know some people think that. Um, and perhaps you'd like to share with us what you think it means. Well, I know that Fred's thought a lot about it, and I very much respect what he said, but I think it's saying that X is black. Oh, thank you very much, Anne. That's a very useful insight. Let's go on to verse 5. See, there's a lot of Bible study like that, so-called, that actually devalues the text. In the end, you give up studying the Bible if you can't find out what it means. It has a clear meaning. Every text has a meaning. And the job of the student of the Bible is to find out what it means. It doesn't mean lots of different things to lots of different people. It isn't a sort of Zen text on which we all meditate and get the buzz that's appropriate to us. There is a plain meaning of Scripture. That's why we've got to work at it. And the third question is the one that we all run to straight away over the page, which is the question of application. That is, what does the text mean to us today? Now, obviously, that depends upon the exposition, but how do we apply it into our lives? Most of us want to rush to that straight away because we say the Bible's the word of God, and therefore it must speak to me directly. Of course it does. But you have to go through a process to understand it of working out what it meant then, of taking it seriously so that we understand its meaning as clearly as we can, and then thinking about the application today. If you think of the story of David and Goliath, for example, I've heard lots of stories from childhood on, lots of talks and sermons about David and Goliath, how, you know, we're like David. See, the application line in people's thinking runs from David to us, because David was weak, he was a little shepherd boy, he was facing a great big giant, and we all face huge problems in life, don't we? And there are many forces ranged against us, great giants in our land. But David believed in the Lord, and he picked up those five stones, and he was ready to fight his giant. And you remember that he picked up five stones, and sometimes I've heard them, prayer and Bible study and witness <laughs> and all these stones, and we never actually told which one kills the giant, but he took one of them, and he slung it, and down went Goliath. So, if we're like David, 
we've only got to do that and the law will kill our giants. Now, is that right? Well, it's true, isn't it, that God fights for us and he gives us his spirit to strengthen us. But it isn't what that story is there in the Bible for, is it? If we want to know where we fit in that story, I think we're the armies of the Lord quivering on the sidelines, absolutely hopeless and unable to fight our giant. And we need our David. And who is David? Great David's greatest son. It's pointing to the Lord's anointed. He was anointed as king and then he fought Goliath. And David is the one who points forward to the Lord Jesus, the anointed son of David, and he's the one who defeats Goliath, and we as the armies of the Lord enter into the victory which he's given us. But you see, because we want to go the quick route to application, we immediately put ourselves in David's shoes. Not always right. Needs thinking about. So these are the questions we've got to ask. Exegetical questions, expositional and applicatory questions. Now, as we start to turn those keys in the lock, what do we discover? Well, we discover that there is a chronological pattern to the Bible. And here, the diagram that you'll find on page three, which I've lifted from Graham Goldsworthy's excellent book, Gospel and Kingdom, which is available on the bookstore under the section books David Jackman recommends, which also includes the Bible, I'm glad to see over there. But uh, Graham Goldsworthy's book, Gospel and Kingdom, has this chart in it which outlines Old Testament history. I'm not going to go into that in detail. There isn't time at the moment. But it does show us the range of the Old Testament's history, and it puts the various bits in chronological order. Now, that's a very useful way of studying the Bible. How God dealt, first of all, with Abraham, how he worked through the patriarchs, eventually produced the nation of Israel, brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the Promised Land, gave them judges and then kings, culminating in King David and King Solomon. After Solomon's death, the division of the kingdom into the south and the north, Judah and Israel, the times of the prophets, with the great prophets sent to both kingdoms, and ultimately the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon, and then the return after that exile to rebuild Jerusalem and the other later prophets and the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah until the end of the Old Testament period. It's all got a timeline that you can follow through. It's important to know that. But going back to page two, there is a second line of discovery. Not only is the Bible arranged chronologically, and of course the books are not always in chronological order in our version of it, but you can also look at the Bible thematically, and that's how the Hebrew Old Testament was arranged according to the type of material. History, law, poetry, prophecy, wisdom, whatever it might be. Now, obviously for us, the most important division is between the Old and the New Testaments, though I don't want us to overplay that I went to a theological college where the principal, Alec Mateer, used to tell us, I think, every term, that the only uninspired page in your Bible is the page that the translators have put between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Tear it out, he said. Uh, well, that's true. It's one book. We can helpfully divide it into before Christ and after Christ, but it is one unit. It's one God revealing himself in one consistent way throughout the whole of the scriptures. So the Old Testament in the Hebrew version is arranged with the law, that is Genesis to Deuteronomy that we're looking at tonight, the five scrolls of Moses. Then the former prophets, which is Joshua, up to the second book of Kings, excluding the book of Ruth. And that's all history presented from God's point of view. It's the story from the conquest of the land of Canaan down through the judges on to David and the division of the kingdom. 
and the rebellion of the northern kingdom against God's commands and their eventual exile in Assyria. Then there are the latter prophets, which are the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and what we call the minor prophets, uh, minor because they're shorter, not because they're less important, and they explain God's activity and reveal his future plans. And then the Hebrew Bible groups what it calls the writings all together. That's Ruth, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, Daniel, and what we call the wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes. So that's another way of looking at it. It's a way of getting a handle on it, you see, of seeing that there are different types of material. If you do the same with the New Testament, obviously, the Gospels are one type of material, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the spreading of the Gospel, then the Apostolic Letters, and then the apocalyptic book of Revelation, where the church is shown in the world and ultimately in its future glory. That's another way of doing it. Or, and this I think is perhaps the most fruitful, you can look at it theologically. That is, there are various models or ways of representing the overall sweep of the biblical revelation. One is covenant, God's binding commitment to his people. And one way of tracing the Bible is to start with a covenant with Noah, to move through the covenant with Abraham and then with the nation at Sinai until we come to the new covenant promised by Jeremiah and fulfilled in the cross of the Lord Jesus and ultimately in heaven when his people are with him forever. It's a great theme that runs through God's binding commitment to his people. Or another theological theme is the theme of kingdom, that God's people under God's rule enjoy God's presence. So they start in the Garden of Eden having fellowship with God with nothing in between. Then, of course, the fall means that Adam and Eve have to be ejected from the garden. But eventually there is a new start for the nation that God chooses in the land of promise. And then, of course, they are evicted from the land at the time of the exile. But then there's a new start with the gospel and the kingdom of God coming in the power of the Lord Jesus. But then there's great apostasy in the church. But ultimately there will be the final conclusion of the new Jerusalem when God's people will be under his authority totally and will see him face to face. The kingdom theme runs all the way through. Or the salvation history theme runs all the way through. That is, that what God is doing in the Bible is reversing the effects of human sin and through the gospel establishing a new creation. He moves from the creation through the fall and the curse to the exodus, to the conquest of the land, to the mistakes that Israel made and their disappointment, and then raises up a new Israel through his new uh, messenger, the Lord Jesus, the great son of great David. And a new Israel is formed, the church of Jesus Christ, grafted into him as the uh, branches are grafted into the vine. And so salvation comes through Christ, and all who trust in him are made members of his body. And that community, both in heaven and on earth, is an eternal community that will never be defeated. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we could spend many evenings on those themes alone. But over the page on page four, I want to suggest to you that there are three dominant threads or themes that run through all these models that we've just very briefly touched on. They're all well worth looking up, well worth studying for yourself, but obviously tonight is just an appetizer. But look at three themes that run through them. Firstly, there is the redeeming initiative of God. That's all the way through the scriptures, that God's initiative is to undo the effects of sin. 
Secondly, there is the centrality of Christ. The whole of the Bible points to the Lord Jesus. The whole of the Bible is either expecting his coming or telling us he's come or explaining what he's done. Christ is in all the scriptures from beginning to end. He is the focal point. He is the Savior, the Lord, to whom the scriptures testify. And so he runs through those themes of kingdom, he's the king. Salvation, he's the savior. Covenant, he's the one whose blood is the means by which the new covenant is inaugurated. And thirdly, they all have in common the end point of perfection. Heaven, if you like. They all begin with the redeeming activity of God undoing human rebellion. They focus on Christ as savior and king. And they point us to heaven when the purposes of God will be complete and when the dwelling place of God will be with his people forever and ever. Now the purpose of the Bible then is to bring us to that glorious destination. That's why it's there. It's the guidebook from earth to heaven. It's everything that we need on the way. It sets out before us God's purposes from the creation of the world to the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And it reveals his heart of love and his character of grace supremely in the Lord Jesus from page one to the very end. Well, there is an overview, but we must focus in now uh, on a little bit more detail. So what we're going to do uh, in the remaining time up to coffee is look at Genesis 1 to 11, which is the first division of the Pentateuch. I've actually divided it into two very unequal halves, as you see, uh, under A there, Genesis 1 to 11, and under B, Genesis 12 to Deuteronomy 34. I'm quite unrepentant about that. I think, actually, if you ask me to divide the Bible into two, I would probably say the Old and the New Testament, but if I wanted to be provocative, I would say Genesis 1 to 11 and the rest. Because, in a way, the rest is the answer to the problems that are posed in Genesis 1 to 11. It's important to keep perspective, isn't it? You probably know that story of the American who came back to Scotland to find his roots. His great-grandfather had emigrated as a very poor man, and now he was extremely wealthy, farmed thousands of acres in Texas and had hundreds of heads of cattle. And he went to the little farm in Scotland that his forebear came from. He was amazed at how small it was. Drove round it in a few minutes in this great car that he'd hired drove up the little track to the farmhouse door and engaged the Scottish farmer in conversation, explained why he'd come and said, come to find my roots and I'm just amazed that this is so small. Just taking me a minute or two to drive up your track. Well, if he said, if I drive off the highway in Texas where I live and I drive to my ranch house, it can take me half an hour to get there. And the Scottish farmer looked at him and said, yes, I know what you mean. I used to have a car like that too. <laughs> all a matter of perspective and uh, a great deal of the Bible becomes clear when you get the perspective right now Genesis 1 to 11 sets the agenda for the whole Bible uh, we'll come to look at the bridge and the second part of it in a moment but come with me to what I've called analysis halfway down page 4 there section A let me just run through it it'll be familiar to many of you but there's the story of creation in 1 1 to 2 4 followed by the story of humanity in 2.5 to 3.24, which, of course, includes the fall. Then in chapter 4, we have Cain and Abel, the effects of the fall. Chapter 5 into 6, verse 8, is from Adam to Noah, telling us what happens before we come to the next key figure, who is Noah himself, 
6.9 to 9.29, and I would call Noah here the covenant man, because that's the great emphasis in the story. Then we have the story of Noah's sons in chapter 10, and in chapter 11, the third great event of these chapters, the, the Tower of Babel, and the human problem again being repeated. And the last part, 11.10 to 11.32, takes us from Shem through to Abraham and introduces us to the rest of the Bible. Now, another way of looking at those chapters is to say there are three key events, and I put that under B there, the fall, the flood, and the scattering. Some people who like alliteration call it the fragmentation. I'll leave you to decide if you want to call it that. I call it the scattering, I think. The fall, the flood, the scattering, three great events that happen which pose universal problems for humanity. But there is a third way of looking at Genesis. Um, if you have your Bible open, just uh, look with me at chapter 11, verse 10, and again at verse 27 in that chapter. Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. This is the account of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Now, that phrase, this is the account, translates the word which you'll see in the notes under C, the Hebrew word tolavoth, which occurs six times in this section. It first comes in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And I've put the six references there in brackets. You can look them up for yourself sometime. Six times in the first 11 chapters and five times in the rest of the book, uh, making 12 sections in all. And it seems very likely that the book of Genesis is composed around the total of those sections. That is to say, they are chapter headings. They are the divisions that the writer has deliberately put in to make the book into 12 sections. Now, the interesting thing is that it comes from this word toledoth, which is, this is the account, or this is the generation of, as the old versions translated. It comes from a verbal root in Hebrew that means to give birth to. So, when you come across the toledoth reference in those tw 11 places that I've mentioned, what it is saying is, this is what gave birth to that. Now, that means to say, this is how one thing led on to another. We translate it, this is the account of, because it's an ordered progression. When you give an account of something, you give it step by step. So the idea you see with these sections, they're like bookends, marking off the 12 sections of Genesis. And it says, this is what happened next. This is what came out of that. This is what it gave birth to. So it's a very interesting way of studying Genesis to see how those different sections all lead on from one another. They are mini books, if you like, 12 books in all put together uh, to make the book of Genesis. And presumably some of that source material existed uh, before Moses wrote it down and put it into this book form. Now, the divisions of the Pentateuch then alert us to the fact that we are to see its story in sections as a developing revelation of God. It's interesting that the first occasion comes in 2.4, which is where many people, of course, want to separate out the two accounts and say they're separate. You've probably heard people say that. That Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are quite separate from one another and it's very hard to reconcile them. I want to say that there are four points of contrast that we need to note. 
They're different in literary style. Genesis 1 is on the grand scale. Genesis 2 is much more domestic and homely. They have differing concepts of God, people tell us. Well, that relates to the style. In Genesis 1, he's the great creator of everything. In Genesis 2, he's almost like the squire, isn't he? Walking in his garden, the Garden of Eden, talking to Adam, his tenant farmer. There are different orders of events, people say. Yes, but that's because the two accounts are not contradictory, but are looking from different perspectives. That's the third thing. And there are different names of God used. And those of you who've suffered theological studies will know that the great documentary hypothesis, as it calls, is called, depends on this, that in one account God is called Yahweh, Jehovah, in another Elohim, and it's thought that the two different names mean that the two different accounts are written at different times, and uh, if you're a liberal scholar, you can't put them together. They were sort of yoked together by a demented editor who wrote the book of Genesis. Now... Although the two chapters are different, what I want to show you on page five is that actually they form one revelation. 1, 1 to 2, 3 has as its focus the whole of creation with humankind as the climax. That's what the story is about. It's a progressive account leading through the creative process to humankind at the peak. And it's in two halves. Day one... Light is created, verse 2. Day 4, the lights of verse 14 are created. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, the sun and the moon. So day 1 is light. Day 4 is the lights. Day 2 is what is called the firmament. Uh, verse 6, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water, and he called it sky. So day two is sky. Day five matches that, verse 20. It's the water teeming with living creatures and the birds flying in the sky. So you get a matching uh, creation of environment, creation of life forms in it. Day three is all about uh, the creation of vegetable life uh, on the earth, verse 9. Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, dry ground appears, the seas are delineated, and then the land produces vegetation. Day six is the land that has already produced vegetation being peopled uh, by the animals and by the human people being uh, uh, the, the, the living animal creatures that are made and man and woman as the climax of that. So it's a very carefully ordered, dramatic, large-scale overture to the whole story of the Bible. God as creator, in control, working out his sovereign will. Now, when you come to 2, 4 to 25, you don't get another account of creation. It's not a creation narrative. It is intended, as its focus, to show human life on earth and the relationship of humanity to everything else in the world. If you want to think of it visually, chapter 1 is a great climax with the creation of man at the peak. It's like an ascending line on a graph till man made in the image of God, man and woman made in the image of God are created. Chapter 2 shows man and woman at the heart of the world, at the centre of the wheel, and shows you what the spokes are going out from them and the relationships that they have with the creation that God has made. So, for example, the physical world is described in verses 4 to 17 and the animal world in 18 to 25. You have the situation in verses 5 to 6, that they were put on the earth 
Um, and uh, there was no shrub of the field had yet appeared, no plant. There was no man to work the ground. There's the situation. Then you have the provision of God in verses 7 to 15. The Lord God formed the man. He had already by that time planted the garden in Eden. The trees were growing. And then at the end of that section, 16 to 17, you have God's law about what's to happen. 16, you're free to eat from any tree, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you've got a situation, a provision, and a law. And in the second part of that chapter, with the animal world, it's exactly the same. You've got a situation, it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. You've got a provision, none of the animals will do, so God creates woman. And you've got a law. 24 and 25. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. So the two accounts are not contradictory. They are not random. They're very carefully produced to reflect in each of their halves, the other half, the one leading up to man and woman as the climax of creation, the other with them at the heart and the purpose of creation being worked out in their ruling the earth as God had called them to. Three theological points then to notice. One, everything exists as a result of God's will. That's something that clearly comes through. Everything exists as a result of the will of God. God said, and there was. And God saw that it was good. So there are no mistakes in creation. God speaks his will and it is done. Creator is perfect. Secondly, humanity is the peak of that creation. It is, humanity is different from the animals. We are created for a special relationship with God. Of course, we have similar characteristics to the animals physically, but we are spiritual beings. God has breathed into us the breath of life. We are created to love him, to serve him, to live in fellowship with him. So humanity is the peak of that creation. Remember, this is setting the agenda for the whole Bible. And thirdly, that creation culminates in rest. 2, 1 to 3. When God had finished the work, he rested on the seventh day from all his work. I think that is saying that the ultimate meaning and purpose is not in work, but in relationship with God, under God's direction, obedient to him. God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as the day on which he rested from all his work. Work has an important place, but the end point is rest, and that, of course, points forward to heaven. So that is the agenda that is being set. Here is man in a perfect environment, the peak of creation, called to live in fellowship with this God who creates everything by the word of his power. As we know, to our great cost, it is the fall that follows. I don't have time to go into the detail, but let me commend to you chapter 3, 1 to 6 as a study of the process of temptation. You'll find, first of all, that Adam and Eve are questioning God's word. Did God say? Did he really say, says the devil, the serpent? Secondly, the serpent denies God's word. He will not surely die. And thirdly, he and the man and the woman defy God's word, and they eat of the tree, questioning, denying, defying. And then in the next uh, half of that chapter, in chapter 4, you get the consequences of disobedience in the story of uh, their rejection from the garden, and in the story of Cain and Abel, alienation from God. You remember how Adam starts to hide. He's ashamed of his nakedness. He can't face God. He blames his wife. Um, 
uh, for, for, the, uh, for the fall. And she blames the serpent, and God says, you are responsible, and uh, you are alienated from me because of this sin. And then in chapter 4, we see it working out socially in the alienation from one another that is represented by the murder of Abel uh, by his brother Cain. So we have a huge problem at the end of chapter 4. We have a world that's gone wrong. We have the peak of God's creation, created to be in his image, no longer living in relationship with him, alienated, and obviously uh, futility and decay and death have come into the picture. What is God going to do? Well, it's interesting. If you go to chapter 5, you'll see that it says, this is the account of Adam's line. What came out of Adam? Well, a lot that was not good, but ultimately, at the end of chapter 5, what came out of Adam was Noah. And Noah's name, as you probably know, means comfort. What we find with Noah is the start of God working in a new way. What came out of Adam was multiplying sin and evil. Chapter 6, uh, verse 1, men began to increase in numbers, uh, and God looks at the world, and what does he see, verse 5? How great man's wickedness had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, and the Lord was grieved that he'd made man. That's what came out of Adam. In fact, you get with Adam two lines of development. You get the godless line, which chapter 4 talks about, through Cain to Lamech and many others who rebelled against God. And you get a much smaller godly line through Seth, chapter 5, verse 3, made in the likeness of Adam and Enoch, uh, who was the uh, father of Methuselah. Chapter 5, verse 22, he walked with God. And verse 24, then he was no more because God took him away, the godly line leading to Noah, and the tenth generation, the uh, one who is the focus of God's purposes. And interestingly, after the ark and the flood, there is from Noah also a godless line and a godly line. The godless line running from Ham and the godly line from Shem. And in ten generations, the godly line leads to Abram. So you've got ten generations from Adam to Noah and ten generations from uh, Noah to Abram. Now, whether or not you take that as being actually ten generations as we understand them today, or whether you say there may have been names left out, but the writer is wanting us to understand that these are the key points. Noah is the function, is the person we should look at carefully, and Abraham is the person we should look at, because this is how God intervenes in the situation to reveal himself in mercy and in grace. Very quickly then, uh, let's look at what he does with Noah. Here we have the first solution of God to the problem of human wickedness. What is he to do? Well, he is going to judge mankind. He must do that because he is a God of holiness and of righteousness. He's going to do two things. He's going to judge sin and he's going to save sinners, at least eight of them in the ark. Look at chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. God says to Noah, I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Everything on earth will perish. There's the judgment. But, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
What do we have there? Well, we have God's solution. And I've got in the notes a line in quotation marks. It is a pledge of salvation. I'm going to rescue you. The pledge rests on election. God chooses Noah. And it operates with justice. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life. Pledge of salvation, resting on election, operating with justice. This is how God deals with human, the human predicament. Now, clearly, the key role, then, is the role of grace. It is the grace of God reaching out to Noah that changes the situation. And that's made beautifully clear in chapter 6 of Genesis, if you've got it open, at verses 8 and 9. Now, it's worth just spending a moment on this because it's such an important point. See, verse 8 says, after all this evil all around him, Noah found grace, it is really, favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. This, then, says verse 9, is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Now, remembering the Toleroth oath, this is what came out of that. You see that in verse 8, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, not because Noah deserves it, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, but because God in his mercy lays hold of Noah, who is a sinner like everybody else. And this is what comes out of God showing grace to Noah. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man. So it's not that Noah goes into the ark because he was a righteous man, otherwise God would be justifying him by works but that God chooses Noah as a sinner among sinners to be gracious to him, and the result of God's grace in Noah's life is that he lives a righteous, blameless life among the people of his time. But he isn't saved in the ark as a reward. That would turn the whole doctrine of the Bible on its head. He's there because of the grace of God that makes him righteous. That's what came out. You see, verse 9 comes out of verse 8. That's why the order's important. So from the very beginning, the work of salvation is a work of grace never a reward for Noah being righteous. It's what came out of God's electing grace that Noah was able then to live a righteous life and, uh, of course, to be a preacher of righteousness, as the New Testament says. But the key role is the role of grace. And that, of course, is very important because it shows us that the deliverance that God brings to Noah and the new start that follows on is all of God's grace. He extends that gracious covenant in chapter 9 to all flesh. He says in 9, 9 to 10, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants and with every living creature. I will never again flood the earth. And he gives the symbol of the rainbow in chapter 9, the covenant sign that he is making a promise that he will never go back on. But it's all a promise of grace. So we have a principle. There is salvation through judgment. God, you see, is both just and the justifier way back in Genesis. He saves Noah justly. He doesn't say, Noah's a good chap, I'll let him off the hook, because Noah's a sinner like everybody else. And Noah goes through the judgment like everybody else. He lives through the flood, but he lives through the flood in the ark. And the ark is the symbol of God's grace by which Noah is carried from the old world with its sinfulness into the new start, which God gives him the salvation that comes through the judgment. Now, it wasn't a very wonderful thing. I mean, we have this um, romanticized view of the ark, don't we? You know, with children's little animals and 
lovely hygienic elephants uh, going in and all sorts of things like that. Alec Mateer used to say it was really like living with your mother-in-law in the zoo. And I guess that's what it was. Uh, it was the in-laws and the animals. And it was a jolly long time. But you were glad you were in the ark because you were going through the judgment. That's why in 1 Peter it says, Jesus is our ark and he carries us through the judgment. The justice of God falls on him just as it fell on the ark. And if we're wrapped up in Jesus, we're translated from the old kingdom into the new kingdom. And we're rescued. It's all here in Genesis in its foundation form. But chapters 10 and 11, it isn't the solution. Because they go and do it again, you see. And within a few generations, they're building the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And they're saying, we don't need God. We're not going to let him control us. We're going to make our own way to heaven. We're going to build our own tower. We are powerful. And God has to come down and scatter them. So what is the solution? We've seen in the summary there that God restores peace and relationship with humanity through a divinely implemented salvation. That's the ark. By grace, with justice. And it results in a divinely created fellowship. But man can't live in that fellowship. He goes on ruining it. The universal problem then has to be answered by a particular solution. God has to do something. And that will become universal in its scope eventually. But he's got to intervene in a new way. And at the end of chapter 11, you have the problem clearly delineated. 